Okay, so today we're going to record what we're doing, all right? And it's for Joshua Simpson. Hi, Joshua. Everybody hey, say hi. Hello, hi, Joshua. Hi. Hello. So I'm going to send this to him, or we'll just post it on the on the on the the, the Facebook deal or whatever, and uh, so he can kind of participate. He's been asking for how we're doing and everything, so I thought it'd be fun to kind of send to him. We miss you. From what I hear, and love you. Well, that yeah, we miss you and love you. Pray for you. Okay. <laughs> lots of lots of love to Joshua. Okay, um, we're going to start chapter seven, verse eight. But first, we're going to pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the um, the desire that we have to grow in Christ, and we pray that you continue to work that in us by your Spirit through the means of the study of your word and through prayer and dependence upon the working of your Spirit. Thank you for this group. Thank you for their hunger for you and for the uh, transforming power of the gospel by your spirit. I pray that you would again open our minds and our hearts to to receive what you would say to us this morning through the story of Moses and Aaron and the confrontation with Pharaoh. It all points to Christ and we pray that he be glorified this morning. In his name we pray, amen. amen. All right, we are on... Chapter 7, verse 8. Just a few verses today, but I think it says uh, quite a bit. So let's look at it. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. <clears throat> What's going on? What, what had just happened? Where, where do we... Snake fight. It's a snake fight. What had gone on before, right before? Battle of the gods. Okay. This is the intro. This is the beginning. The plague narratives begin here. And it's interesting because they're flanked by the snake battle and by the crossing of the Red Sea. You have it... An inclusio, we call it. You know, you, we've talked about that before. This, this, the beginning of the snake battle, and and then the, the 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 crossing of the Red Sea. In fact, this incident foreshadows the crossing of the Red Sea. Why do I say that? Well, the language that is used is very similar. The snake swallows the other snakes. The sea swallows the army of Pharaoh, um, and we see the use of the staff turned into a serpent that swallows Pharaoh's snakes, and Aaron's staff is used to um, open up the sea, and which swallows the army. So you have this inclusio kind of idea. This is the first volley uh, between a heavenly conflict. It's not between Moses and Pharaoh. That's not the battle. It's not between Moses and the magicians. It's not even between uh, Israel and Egypt. It's between the God of the Hebrews and the God of the Egyptians, in this case, Pharaoh, who's viewed as a deity by the Egyptians. 
All right. Notice how God prepares them in verse 8. What does he do? What does he, what does he tell them Pharaoh is going to do? Ask them for a miracle. Now, why would he, why would he, why would he say that? N- number one, uh, put aside the fact that he knows what's going to happen. Why would, why would that be the thing he focuses on? What is he supposed to be coming from God, so God does miracles. Prove that's it, right. Prove that you're coming from God. Prove it. Prove that you're from a God. Why, now, what do we know about Egyptians and magic? Do we, they do it. They do it, yes. In fact, it's, <laughs> that's, that's how, <laughs> that is, uh, that, that is uh, the determination of, of which God is more powerful is the God that has the more powerful magic, the more overt miracles. And so, what's significant about, about this? Why, why would Pharaoh want to see a miracle other than the fact that magic is a big deal in Egypt? So he can challenge. It. So he can challenge. Pharaoh, God is anticipating Pharaoh's going to issue a challenge. Um, is that unique? Prove to me God exists. Have you heard that before? That's the natural bent of all people who, who are unbelievers. Anyone who challenges God in the gospel is, show me a miracle. And I told, we talked last week about the atheist who, who in, the, in the middle of a debate, would say, I would believe in God if this podium lifted up and floated across you know, the audience. Right? What does Jesus say about that? We talked about that last week. Still you still won't believe. There's a whole parable about that. <clears throat> Lazarus and, and the rich man, where the rich man burning in hell says... Send me back to warn my five brothers not to come to this place. And what does Moses, what does Abraham say to uh, to the rich man? He says, "Look, they've got Moses and the prophets. If he's not going to believe them, he's not. Believe, they're not going to believe anybody, even though he raised from the dead, right? The greatest miracle of all. They're still not going to buy because why? Our hearts are hardened by nature. All right." Pharaoh is testing to see how much more power uh, God has than him. And, and the God with the most magic was supreme. Um, some have said that the whole serpent reference here is dealing, it, 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 it refers to crocodiles. I don't think so. I think, I, I think that the context here is a challenge from one God to another. God picks a serpent for a very specific reason. Have, have you have you seen the the, 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 the King Tut pictures? The, what's on the crown? A snake. A snake. It's a it's not a crocodile. Why is that there? What is that? What is the purpose of having that snake on the crown? Do you think? And also in Aladdin, Jafar. <laughs> So Aladdin and Jafar has his name. Okay, what what? Um, it, yeah, <laughs> we need to check your translation, Todd. Um, the the it probably refers to the emblem of a cobra, right? Which is the symbol of ancient Egypt, the the cobra. Kevin, why do yes. some people think that it's crocodile? Because they're clueless. Well, some some say that because it would be it, it, it would it would feed more into the Egyptian milieu of, of gods and, uh, and that kind of thing. But but the but the, 
the context really is a direct <coughs> reference to the cobra, which is sitting on top of the king's head. And, and so you have this, this, um, this challenge by God directly at the authority of the king. The cobra is a sign of his deity. It's a sign of his authority and power. And here's God throwing down a rod to become that very symbol. Verse 10. Everything happened as God told them it would. And, but what's different about this time as opposed to their first meeting? This time, they followed what he said. It goes a little better this time around. Right? Remember the first time they, they kind of got uh, a little cocky? <clears throat> Let my people go. Well, who is, I don't know, Yahweh. I don't know this God of yours. Um, go look for straw and, and build bricks. This time it goes a little better. They learned from their first audience with Pharaoh that God was running this operation, not them. Here we have a direct confrontation and they're attacking Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the heart of their beliefs. This, this, um, when the rod is thrown down and becomes a serpent, it's, it's a direct attack on sovereignty. And in fact, there's a taunting going on here. It's more than just, you know, let's challenge. There's a taunting that, that happens with, this, with this, this symbol. Another thing to think through here, and you may not know this, maybe you do, the, the Egyptian mythology, there is a... Um, a story about uh, many stories about magicians who who transform inanimate objects into animals. They have all this mythology about this thing. These powerful magicians doing this stuff. A lot of them are the kings and everything. So, one in particular talks about a magician who um, takes a wax crocodile. Maybe this is where they get the crocodile. A wax crocodile and puts it in the river and it becomes a living crocodile. And he takes it up again and it turns into a wax crocodile. Okay. What do you think, if, if that's in the minds of the Egyptians, when, when Aaron throws down this rod and then picks it up again and it's a sort of, you know, it's a back to being, what do you think is going through the minds of the Egyptians here? They might not see it as a big deal. Oh, we've seen magic stuff before. So what? It's a trick. Pretty cool trick, but... There's a, there's a debate... Because the magicians of Egypt do this too, right? Calls them all in. Throw it on the ground. Uh, there's a debate as to whether or not this is a true act by the Egyptian magicians to, to truly transform staff into snake or if it's a sleight of hand kind of thing. There's a debate. Um, there's, uh, there's known to be a group of people called the Silly, which I found very silly, um, that, that, uh, that, that knew a little... A little technique, and don't try this, um, where you could where you could like like pinch a nerve on the back of the snake's neck, and it, it paralyzes them. Huh. I should have tried that with the coral snake, probably. No. Um, so, but it paralyzes them, and then and then they were you know they let it go, but for temporarily. So there's that idea, and then the other idea is that no, they really had tapped into a demonic power kind of thing and, and were able to, to do... I mean, you, you see it in Revelation where it talks about, uh, and in Jude, where, where false prophets do false signs and wonders. The, the channel to find those is TBN. Uh, but 
uh, you see you see this kind of uh, argument that these false prophets would would do things like this. So there's a debate there, but even so, God's choosing of this miracle might be a, a, a taunting, a polemic against their common mythology. It's not just you in Egypt that can that, that do this. I can really do it because I'm really God and you're not, right? I take. Sorry, the wrong source. It may be a real miracle, but but a, but one that is a false source. I have to God, but it's still not real. Wow. Okay. Um, we go down a road there, but maybe not. Um, all right. Look at number eleven. Magicians. Verse eleven. Pharaoh calls his wise men and sorcerers. That's what the word magician uh, in, in the original language, it, it talks about, it's just for your next part, if you want to throw down a $10 word, it's called hartom. It's a borrowed word from the Egyptians. Uh, again, giving credibility that this really happened, that the, the Hebrews were actually in Egypt, they're using borrowed terms by the Egyptians. But it's referring to someone, it's a title, referring to someone who is not only a magician, but a member of the priestly, the priestly caste and a teacher of wisdom. Don't be surprised when you run into unbelievers who may be really nice people, really talented, really smart. These are the wise men of Egypt. But they're false compared to the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible. They're shown to be false. And yet, I'm sure they're very engaging people. Um, interesting, actually. You know, God sent this prophet, you know, his priests out, and then Pharaoh comes up and says, he sends his out. Right. Essentially, here, go to battle for me. Exactly. And, and, and in the picture that we're looking at, Moses is using Aaron that way. That's the way God set it up. I'll make you as a god to Pharaoh, and then I will tell you do everything I tell you to do. Um, all right. You know, um, look, look at verse 12. So the rods swallowed the other rods. So, so Aaron's rod swallowed the other rods. So what? What does that mean? What significance does that have? Okay. It's a hungry rod. It's probably... Well, it's not, it's not that their rods couldn't duplicate. They couldn't duplicate that. Yeah. You know, his rod 
showing the true. Who has the more power? If you're looking at Egyptian terminal, Egyptian mindset, worldview, his magic's more power than mine because he didn't just conquer one; he conquered all of them. It's a little bit harder to think. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then a silly thing. How can I force it to? I like that. Yes. Yeah. In 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 what way? In the way that it's going to happen God's way and not his. Okay. I think God kind of realized it. God's going to swallow them up. Yeah. Good. Good. I think also it's interesting that the the one snake that, that God turned Aaron's staff into mm-hmm. swallowed up all the other snakes. Right. Like and it wasn't and there might have been a little struggle, but it, it was obviously at the end. It was gonna. God was gonna conquer. Only one snake remains. Right. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that this is, God. God obviously chose this because He knew the magicians could do this. Hmm. All the other plagues, they couldn't replicate or undo. Right. They right. They had absolutely no. Well, power. the first two they could replicate, but you're right, they couldn't undo. Well, they couldn't undo. Yeah. Are you are you making reference to when uh, he parts the Red Sea and they follow through and the sea swallows them up? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Gulp. Gulp. <laughs> the staff, the symbolism of a staff or a rod, was power. Yeah. And he doesn't say the serpent swallowed the serpent. It's the staff swallowed the staff. The, the rods swallowed the other rods. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And that's exactly, and that's very in keeping with the term swallowed up, because swallowed up has more of a connotation than just gulp. Right. It, it's a destruction, a destroying of the power and the authority of what it swallows. Um, in, in, in the mindset of the Egyptian, it's very significant. Um, not only does it functionally destroy what, it's, what, what is swallowed, but it also has a, a sense of acquiring the various traits associated with it. It assimilates in... The, the power and the authority that this thing had now is on what swallowed it up, right? Okay. Uh, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron's rod devoured the staffs of the magicians and it destroys their authority and power. Further, it demonstrated that true sovereignty lay in the hands of Yahweh. Complete picture here. Everything, all the different snakes that you bring, all the different symbols of power and authority that you bring toward the God of the Hebrews, he destroys and takes their power from them. Okay. Big sign, big wonder, big taunting, big humiliation for Pharaoh in his own court. And yet, what does verse 13 say? Still hardened. Still hardened. Wouldn't listen. Now we had a sense early on that this hardening was a process. It was getting more and more hardened. The language here says that no longer. It's a completed action. His heart is now hard. It's completely resistant to any any call for repentance, which would be okay. I'll let him go. That's repent. That's a sign of repentance on Pharaoh's part. He's completely hardened now. All right. What he is is angry. Well, yeah, I lost some good some good snakes. <laughs> um, well, he buys into his, his own media press. 
I'm God, and now he's being shown up. And so, you know, when you're confronted, the first thing people do is get angry. Sure. You think you think he's buying into his own teleprompter? Oh, I do. Okay. Um, <coughs> do you... We're gonna, let's, let's, let's conclude here with some thoughts. Do you find it interesting that God would use the very symbol of the power of Egypt to defeat the power of Egypt? Why didn't he go in there with a mongoose? It's something that's familiar to them. Sure. They know, they know about it. They know what it represents. It's kind of like beating somebody on their own turf. You go to their city in their football stadium and you beat them on their own ground with yeah. their stands and yeah. their way. You beat them at their own game. This is a cultural monkey stomp is what this is. I mean, it's a beat down. Yes? In some ways it's showing him that it's his own folly because he didn't listen. Sure. Sure. It's taking the culture and turning it on its head and just demonstrating the authority and power of God. Yeah? I mean, it's kind of a, it's like still monkey stomp because like, I mean, for them, this serpent was the most powerful thing and they are probably the most powerful nation out there. Sure. So the snake is like the pinnacle of Egyptian society. Yeah. And then Moses walks in with his own serpent and lowers the temple. This isn't even our thing and I can still beat you. Right? <laughs> We don't, we don't worship snakes. We don't have snakes as our, our symbol of our authority. And we can still, and my God, or Moses being as God to Pharaoh, can still beat him. And he uses this serpent to demonstrate his victory and foreshadows a greater victory over the serpent of Egypt in the Red Sea. Right? We're looking ahead. It's all moving toward this public spectacle of Pharaoh to defeat him on his own turf, with his own symbol, with his own uh, claim to, fa- uh, to power and, and, and fame and authority. And it's all moving toward this, what's coming in the Red Sea. Do you find it interesting that, at, that God would use the very symbol of the power of sin to, depe- to defeat hmm, the power of sin? Yes. And even more overtly, you see that in the cross. When I was reading this this week, I was telling Tammy, the thing that immediately comes to my head is death swallowed up in victory. The language is very specific. The power of the cross through the death of Christ defeats the power of death. Right? The power of sin poured out on him and the wrath poured out on him, the death that he endured because of the sin of others, false trial, malicious beating, mockery of the Son of God, all of that sin that's involved there is used to destroy the power of sin for his people. I I think that's amazing. So in a sense... The snake confrontation foreshadows the Red Sea, but it also foreshadows the cross. God in, works that way. Yeah. In Numbers, when they, the snakes come and bite everybody, mm-hmm. and God says, put, the, put a bronze one up on a pole, and if you just look at it, and it cures them from being bitten. I mean, it's obviously a reference to Christ that you just have to look at it and see, recognize that that's the real one. You know, you don't have to worry about the ones that are biting you, but 
just having faith in that one cures you. You see God use that a lot, that, that kind of imagery, often in the Old Testament, of, um, of using the very symbol of the thing that is the enemy of his people to confound his enemies and to destroy it for his people. Um, Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 2.15 And think of this in terms of Pharaoh's court, foreshadowing what happens on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-56 When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Christ fulfills the law to nullify the power of the law over us. Christ bears the weight and wrath of sin to destroy the power of sin over us. Christ dies to destroy the power of death over us. I just I think that's phenomenal. Yet even with such a great spectacle the resurrection. People can't be talked into repentance and faith. Even with a, a miracle as attested to as the resurrection of Christ, you can't logically argue someone into the kingdom. Sin is illogical. They need to have their hearts changed, softened, made flesh rather than hardened stone. And that's an operation of the Holy Spirit, not of our awesomely awesome persuasiveness. Yes. One thing about the law, um, before Christ came, people didn't have the law written on their hearts. Mm. And the law was an external thing telling them, you need to do this. And um, they couldn't. So, I mean, it was just always condemning them because they right. couldn't fulfill it. When Christ came to fulfill the law, he sent the Holy Spirit. And when, when the person's the law is written on their heart they, because they're in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law, so therefore we fulfill the law. It's not an external thing we have to do anymore. It just comes out of us naturally. It yes. No, it doesn't seem that way sometimes, but you're right. In that's in, in, in the work of the Spirit, that's where we're headed. And that's what we see unfolding over time. Um, after, uh, after this sign, Pharaoh is still hardened. And there are many who are still hardened even after the historically attested to account of the resurrection. Even those who were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many believed, and the others said, we have to kill this guy. And they, they were there when Lazarus came out of the tomb. Isn't that an odd thing? They saw the same miracle, but had two different reactions to it. To see someone raise another person from the dead, and your immediate thought is, we've got to kill this guy. <laughs> Illogic, Cole. 
logical. No. And yet that's exactly what they did to their own demise. What about you? Are you flitting from one search for a sign to another? The greatest sign is what Jesus called the sign of Jodah. Three days, I'll be in the belly of the earth, and I'll raise again. That's the greatest sign. Attested to historically by historical documents in the Gospels. Is that enough? Is that enough for us? Does that cause us joy? Uh, here's one. Do you find it interesting that it's by dying daily that the Spirit kills death in you? It's an odd faith we're involved in, isn't it? Ephesians 2, 1-3 you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now at work, is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, by nature, children of wrath, deserving of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Nothing special about me, nothing special about you. We start from a standpoint of cold, dead stone. But God being rich in mercy makes us alive. You've got to be born again. You've got to be transformed. And that happens by the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, turn to Romans 8. Here's a nice paradox for you. Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What kind of sense does that make? <coughs> Who puts to death the deeds of the body? Jesus. Jesus is always a good answer in Sunday school. <laughs> What does the verse say? Does it? If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What in the world does that mean? I, I really want to figure out this because I want to live. Yeah? You have to have a willingness to realize your faults and to ask for forgiveness. It's like the Spirit within you should bring that out of you and convict you of it. So you can't do it by yourself because then it would just be uh, half hearted. Okay. <laughs> a legalistic, I guess, would be another way. What, what, uh, so the Spirit works in us repentance for the sin that we commit because all of us do. I mean, I, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar, First John says. And you're sinning again by saying you're without... Yeah, so it's a kind of vicious cycle to say you don't have sin. Um, unless you're a shaker. Oh, because, yeah, perfectionism, yeah. Um, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, if by the Spirit you, how does the Spirit... How, how do we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? What does that mean? 
washed with the word daily, Romans 12 too, right? Okay, yeah. I think that the Spirit gives us strength to do what we could not do on our own. Okay. Okay, how? With the word. Two things at, per, at work here, isn't there? There's a washing of your head, pouring of the word into your head, uh, renewing your mind, you know, the, the, the phrase that, that Paul uses in other places. And there's what Jesus calls being radical with our sin. He, he talks about um, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. I don't think <laughs> I don't think he's asking everyone to do a right hand amputation today. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better going, you know, with one eye than to, to be thrown body and soul into hell. I don't think he's talking about self mutilation there. I think he's talking about I'm pretty confident he's talking about. In fact I know he's talking about um, <clears throat> being radical. With our sin. Where, where are we going? What are we going back? What vomit are we turning to as dogs? You know, Proverbs talks about. What are we returning to again and again and again? Cut it off. And what does he say at the end of that verse? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound cocky? No. Not fear. Well, it does tell you read the next verse after. Which says? It says, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will, to want to, and to actually do it. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. To will and to do according to his good pleasure. Follow your heart is spiritual suicide. Okay? Seize the day is spiritual suicide. We're a narcissistic culture. Our hearts are drawn to looking at ourselves in a very calm pool. Aren't we beautiful? we got to be daily killing our sin or it will be killing us, to paraphrase John Owen. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another. Hebrews, calls, Hebrews 3 calls us to encourage one another, to hold each other accountable, to, to, to not be wrapped up in the deceitfulness of sin. That's why community is so important. That's why the church is so important. God puts us together to... to I don't see my blind spots but I, I guarantee you, Tammy does. And you do too. Kevin, that's not right. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just, just it's normal. Check, yes? I was just going to say, I think it's real easy to, to become defeatist in our own sin and say, well, someday I'll be perfect. Someday. Yeah. But I think in this story, this picture of the, the power and sovereignty of God and the snake swallowing up all the other snakes in hell, mm. that points to the cross we can take great encouragement that, that we shouldn't be defeatist. We, we have a Savior who's already conquered sin for us and who does give us what we need to fight those battles in our own lives. Um, you know, that it's not, a, it, it's not in vain that we fight those battles. 
here's here's the and, and I think this to tag off of what you just said, here's the liberating thing. This is the beauty of of the gospel over the law. Um all is yours. You're in Christ, and Christ is God's. Right? So he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, God is pleased with you. When, if you're in Christ, God is pleased with you as he is with his own son. So be who you are. If you're in Christ, and you've taken on his righteousness, which is foreign to all of us, if you've taken on his conquering of sin, which is foreign to all of us, God sees you like he sees his son. That's got to be encouraging. And yet, there is this call, this pulling, this tugging, this command to be who we are in Christ. Already seated with him, yet struggling here on earth through the remaining remnants of our own sin. The, 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 the stony sediment of our hearts that have been turned into flesh. Mark 8, 35. We're going to finish here. Well, I may go to one more and then we'll finish. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The loss we may suffer by these temporary daily dying to ourselves, the loss we may suffer is pennies compared to the riches in Christ now and the riches to come in Christ when he returns. It's pennies. Right, right, and and the fact that God, in His great power, will um, not only restore our bodies but glorify them. Christ is a prototype. I mean, read through the resurrection accounts and what they saw in the risen Christ. He was not a mangled mess that He was on the cross. He was glorified. He bore scars for our sake, but He was glorified. He didn't. You're gonna. Their, their, their response was to fall before him and Thomas, my God and my king. It was not, let me take you to the ER. That should encourage us. He's the prototype. He's the first fruits, the firstborn of the dead, um, Paul calls him. And I, just to, to, to end with Paul here in Romans eleven thirty three. 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable are his ways. Take great comfort in the fact that God conquers through what we see as weak. Um, give ourselves, we need to give ourselves daily over to his, um, to his authority and his sovereignty and trust him that he's doing what he said he will do, which is transform us into the image of Christ through daily taking up our cross. Any, any other questions, any other comments? Um, I just found interesting. Well, uh, how we daily create our own snakes, huh. and whether it is um, working on something without trusting God, thinking we ourselves can do it without, I That's mean, good. and not trusting His faithfulness, and then He comes up and just swallows it and says, "Hey, I'm sovereign. 
Yeah. So. Our own snakes will bite us. Yeah. God's snakes will swallow up our own idols, right? That's yeah. good, Carlos. It's good to see you. Pleasure. You too. Yeah. Any, 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 uh, anything else? Any, anybody else? One, one last shout out to Joshua. Can we? Do? Bye, bye, Joshua. The authentic faces smiling at you right now. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that you've given us in Christ. That we can rest in him while we work hard to kill the sin that remains in us. Knowing that it won't fully be resolved until he returns and makes us new. But we want to be like him. We strive to be like him. We want to to not only learn doctrine and theology and and make our heads think right, but we want to have hearts that follow the natural uh, outlay, the outcoming, uh, of the natural result of that doctrine, that you are great and that you love us and that that you are pleased with us in Christ, that you may discipline us for our own sin, but it's never out of wrath, it's out of love as a father loves a son. So we, we thank you for that. We, we rest in that. Teach us to rest in that more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.